I'm Alex Green. Welcome to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. That's the music of Ben Vaughn, who is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Ben Vaughn. I got to tell you, though, before I start, Ben Vaughn's CV uh, has more highlights than a Steph Curry career retrospective. The guy has done everything. Let me, uh, let me break down what I can for you, and uh, he'll fill in the rest. Ben Vaughn grew up in the Philadelphia area of the New Jersey side of the river. At age six, while most kids were eating popsicles and playing with Legos, he was listening to Dwayne Eddy. That's right, he was listening to Dwayne Eddy at age six. And from there, there was no turning back. 1983 saw Ben Vaughn form a band called the Ben Vaughn Combo. They put a couple records out and uh, toured around a bit, and people were really catching on. In 1988, he went solo, signed to Restless Records, put a few albums out with those guys, including my sentimental favorite, Beautiful Thing, which uh, you'll hear about in the interview, why that's so sentimental to me. Oh, I know. I bet you can't wait. Why is that album so sentimental to Alex? Well, there is a reason. Uh, Ben got a lot of airplay on 120 Minutes, toured Europe and the U.S., and uh, word was out about Ben Vaughn. During that time period, he also produced three albums for the Electra Records American Explorer series, and he put out a record called Cubist Blues with Alan Vega and Alex Chilton, which, by the way, I would recommend that you check out. He also did scores for indie films like Favorite Mopar and Wild Girls Go-Go-Rama. That's right, Wild Girls Go-Go-Rama. No, Daniel Day-Lewis is not in that movie, but you should still see it. In 1995, with the grunge sound still all over the charts and Britpop ascending, Ben Vaughn did the only logical thing that a musician could do. He put out an instrumental album. That's right, an instrumental album. What was it called? Instrumental Stylings. Now, you're probably thinking, that's a guy who was really out of step with the times. Was he? Because guess what? That album became his calling card, and thanks to a very auspicious interview he did live on the radio, his life changed forever because of that interview and because of that album. I'll let him tell you that story, but it is pretty damn amazing. Uh, Ben Vaughn from there got a job scoring music for television. Maybe you're familiar with his work. He did Third Rock from the Sun and that 70s show, and from there, Ben Vaughn became television's hitman. There's no other way to put it. He scored Men Behaving Badly, Grounded for Life, and countless others. He also scored indie films like Psycho Beach Party and Scorpion Spring. No, Daniel Day-Lewis is not in either of those, but you should still see them. He also produced albums for the likes of Ween, Mark Olson from the Jayhawks, who was also a guest on this program, Nancy Sinatra, and he produced the Swingers soundtrack. Now, Ben Vaughn, through all these years, has never stopped making great 
music. His albums are incredible. They're smart. They're literate. They're rhythmic. And they're always cool. Ben Vaughn is super cool. He knows everything about music. He's kind of a musicologist. As a matter of fact, you can hear just how far his range of knowledge goes if you listen to his radio show, The Many Moods of Ben Vaughn. I've been a fan of Ben Vaughn's for about 30 years, and I've always wanted to chat with him. And you know what? It was totally worth the wait. So here's my conversation with Ben Vaughn. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. It's funny, my, my entry point with you goes back to 1987 when I was a 17-year-old uh, high school DJ. Um, and I was talking to, uh, I think it was Eileen Barge, who was working at Restless. Do you remember her? I do. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, uh, oh, Ben's coming into the office. And I said, oh, can you have Ben sign a poster for me? And she said, yeah. And so she did, and you did it. And she sent it over, and you wrote, this is what you wrote. You said, Alex, hang this in your bathroom. <laughs> I uh, probably uh, I probably would sign the same thing right now to you. <laughs> nothing nothing has changed in the thirty years or more that since that. <laughs> That's really funny. Did you hang it in your bathroom? I did. I took. I listen. If Ben Vons is hanging in your bathroom, I hang it in the bathroom. Awesome. Yeah, it was. You know, I gotta tell you though, it's. It. I know it sounds silly, but it always meant a lot to me that you took the time to do that. Well, thanks. Yeah, I. Uh, I think I, I. I vaguely recall this because she told me you were a high school DJ, and I said, "Wow, you know, my high school did not have a radio station." So. I was uh, I was impressed. Well, I'm happy we, for you. Thank you, and and I uh, and it took me you know it took me what thirty years to be able to say thank you to you. So it's nice to uh, close the circle. Great. Well, excellent. That's that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were a metal station. We were in Concord, California, and I managed to subversively play the beautiful thing record in between Motorhead and Megadeth. Wow. The two M's. <laughs> The two M's. Um, hey, I am really excited about the vinyl release of this record because this record really is a big turning point in your career. Yeah, it turned out to be. Yeah, it sure did. Um, I was wondering, what were you doing recording an instrumental record in 95, which would have been like post-Nirvana? I mean, right, that was sort of like when the big um, – the revolution had already happened in terms of grunge, but – I like that you said, I think I'll go instrumental right now. What was the whole impetus for doing that record in the first place? Well, I always liked instrumental music, and every one of my albums, uh, well, the first three of my albums included an instrumental track. Um, I was in an instrumental band when I was a kid in high school and uh, always loved instrumental rock. And even deeper, I would always... Uh, pay attention when I was watching TV. I would pay attention to the score and what instruments were being used and in films. And it was always something that I always meant to pursue. You know, I've always been sort of out of time. You know, not really uh, part of any trend or any movement, uh, which is kind of funny to me. Like when I first started, I think I was considered alternative rock, and then I was roots rock, and then I was. Uh, um, Americana, 
then I was triple A, and I think I finally ended up just being indie by the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's um, my musical taste and, and what I follow as a creative person never really have to do much with what's going on outside of my own creative mind, really, you know. I'm not very influenced. Um, just everything that I've ever listened to is kind of being filtered. And, um, you know, in the, in the early 90s, I thought it was time to to see how much uh, expression I could get out of instrumental music because I've been a lyricist and known mainly for being a lyricist by the people who are aware of me. And um, I put an EP out in Spain. I guess it would have been like 93. Uh, I think it was like eight instrumental tracks. And Glenn Morrow at Bar None heard that record. And uh, he really liked it a lot and said, if you can come up with a whole album of that stuff, I'll put it out. And at the same time, I was looking to move to L.A. to pursue film music because Pulp Fiction was just about ready to come out. The summer of 94 actually did come out. I saw that movie and, and a few people in Hollywood told me this this is the direction that film music is going to go and they're going to need a really good surf guitar player out there for session work and for possible scoring. So I moved out. And while I was getting ready to move, I finished up that record for Glenn. Half of it was for Glenn, and the other half was sort of a composer reel to play for people when I got to Hollywood. And uh, three months after arriving in Hollywood, that record got me uh, the gig with Third Rock from the Sun. Unbelievable. Yeah, it happened really fast. I was on the radio, KCRW in Santa Monica. I was on the radio being interviewed. And they were playing the record, and the president of the production company that um, was producing the Third Rock pilot heard me on the radio and called the station and told me, gave me the directions to the studio lot and said, come here the minute you're done. (laughs) (laughs) And I did. And I was hired uh, on the strength of that record because what they said was, we're looking for classic American rock and roll as if played by aliens. And we think that's already what you're doing, <laughs> which I, I took as a I took as a compliment. Yeah, well, that was finally a club that you wanted to be a part of. Yeah, it's really interesting. The mainstream TV you can't get more mainstream than NBC, right? Especially back then, and they recognized my potential more than the record business did. I was too weird for the record business. I no one could figure out how to market me because I was kind of all over the place. And, and I have sympathy for the people who try to market me. I, I know, you know, rebellious memories. It was more like, yeah, good luck. I don't know <laughs> I don't know how to describe what I do. And it's really hard for you guys to describe what I do. And uh, they couldn't figure out what to do with me in the record business. But TV, which was considered mainstream and kind of square, they didn't think I was weird at all. They thought I was just perfect, as I was. It's funny because all your career, people have been trying to categorize you, like you were saying, indie rock, and then your roots rock, and your Americana, and finally someone says, do you know, you're, you're, you know, music played by aliens, and you went, I like that one. <laughs> That's a good yeah. one. I know. It wasn't too far off. I've always felt like I was on the outside of the action, you know, uh, and uh, creating kind of in a vacuum, and uh, yeah, that, that, uh, that record that record really had a life that um, 
Glenn and I did not anticipate at all, you know. Well, you could argue that you had made your least commercial record and you reaped the most com- you know, commercial rewards because of it. That's true because it is a lo-fi recording. Um, it's an eight-track recording. I played all the instruments. It's a reel-to-reel. It's not digital. And um, besides, I mean, there's drum machine on there, but anytime you hear like a, a bass uh, keyboard line that is uh, repetitive, that's me playing it for four minutes straight till my hand goes numb. I mean, I, I, it's not sequenced. That is a, a very uh, kind of rough-and-tumble record in that sense, the way it was recorded and how quickly. I mean, I wrote and recorded the, the um, half of that record in, like, maybe a, you know, a, a month and uh, gave it to Glenn, and we um, had it mastered. The next thing you know, it was out. I mean, it happened really, really fast. Up to that point, you you had a very respect, um, respectful career in terms of people knew who you were. Marshall Crenshaw, of course, did the Brenda Lee song. Um, and the story that you tell about, about them hearing you, it almost sounds apocryphal. It, it almost sounds like the kind of thing that doesn't happen anymore. Um, it almost sounds like myth because, you know, the world doesn't seem to work that way. Um, so it's it's a remarkable story. It is, and it's and it also there's one other aspect to it that is that is uh, interesting is that um, when I moved to California, I, I I was living in New Jersey, and I and I left um, New Jersey in uh, the middle of winter, the first actually the first January first, nineteen ninety five, New Year's Day. I, I drove to California in my Rambler, a sixty four Rambler, and uh, when. Third Rockman and Son called me and had me come into the office to watch the pilot. The opening scene are the aliens arriving on Earth in a Rambler. <laughs> so what I, I, I said to them, stop the tape, stop the tape. And they're like, why? What's wrong? I said, nothing's wrong. I said, look out the window. I had a, they gave me a parking space right out right next to their office on the lot. I said, look out the window. See that Rambler? That's my car. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, you got the job. So, like, uh, the, you know, the right guy at the right time driving the right car. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, it's it's one of those moments where everything just falls into place. Yeah, it was pretty astounding to me. Um, you know, I had assumed that, you know, I took a vow of poverty a long time ago. I figured if I'm going to be a creative person, I'm going to be a musician, you know, or recording artist, uh, songwriter. I'm going to be broke for the rest of my life. And uh, I came to terms with that, you know, a long time ago, that this is the way it's going to be. And how much do I love music? Well, I love it enough to be poor, you know, no problem. And I had it down. I had I had it down uh, being, you know, uh, modestly successful and pretty much broke most of the time. Um, I was dedicated to uh, creativity, you know. And uh, when I was discovered by mainstream TV, it was the strangest thing for me because I I didn't expect success at that point. <laughs> it is kind of heartbreaking, though. To... Oh, sorry, Ben. Sorry. Yeah. I, no, no. I figured I would be um, putting music to really cool indie films that don't make much money. Mm. That's pretty much what I moved to LA to do. I figured that was where my talent was going to be used. And I was, it was the complete opposite. 
It is kind of heartbreaking to think, though, that if someone says, I, I'm going to dedicate my life to creativity, which is a noble um, and inspiring pursuit, um, but baked into that is this idea of that could lead me to being ghettoized in, uh, you know, financially, in poverty. And in society. Yeah, and in society. <laughs> you know, right. What do you what do you do for what do you what do you do for a living? I'm a musician. Oh, how's that going? <laughs> you know, it's never it's never received uh, uh, that well. You know, um, I was okay with it. You know, I I uh, I didn't mind at all because I had really didn't have expensive tastes, and I really um, was n- never a person who cared about security that much. It was uh, I'm I'm blessed in the sense that I was born that way. I guess where I just uh, didn't need many material things to make me happy, and um, I was doing all right. You know, it was, it was good, and I, I never really thought of it, of it as unfair or a negative thing. I just figured it was, you know, it's like uh, it's like being a poet. You know, you're not going to make any money if, if you decide that you are going to be a professional poet. I went to graduate school for poetry, and and my. It's, I never thought about what was supposed to happen afterwards because I was so committed to what you were saying, dedicated to the creative process, that the financial component of it hadn't even occurred to me. Um, I hadn't even thought about that, and I wonder if that's one of the pleasures and also one, you know, one of the things to be aware of when you're a creative person that um, you know, sometimes it's best not to think about the financial element of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had to. Um, well, the great thing about music, though, is you can always play in bars and make some money, and you can always do gigs. And, and the, the, you know, I made money as a live act. That was what I was living on. And uh, toured a whole lot. I toured constantly in the 80s, you know, from probably about 1986 to about 1994 or 93. I was on the road in America, across country, at least like, you know, seven or eight times, and then also in Europe a bunch of times all over the place. So poetry, you can't, well, you can tour actually, and you don't have to, and you know how many equipment you got to drag around. So it's actually probably a better gig, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) it's uh, music is uh, the only art form that is also social, you know, like when you go into a gas station, the radio is on, there's music on when you um, in a pizzeria or you're walking down the street and a car goes by, there's music coming out. You never see a you never see a painting come out or a or a poem, you know. Um, music is the most portable and like I guess liquid of art forms. Right. So there are a lot of ways where you can collect some money here and there. And uh, scoring films was was uh, besides being a recording artist, scoring films it was another way. I thought, wow, I could probably make a you know make an okay living. And uh, and write music every day, which is what I wanted to do, and that's what the record business didn't give me. Um, you only need twelve songs every year and a half if you if you have a record deal. And I wanted to write music every day, and I wanted to test myself and see. I knew I was an artist, but I wasn't sure if I was a craftsman. And I wanted to write with deadlines. So I wanted to write on assignment. I wanted. I had a romantic image of what that would be like. I was a big fan of the Brill Building writers and and stories about uh, film composers. 
being in a little room with a piano and somebody, you know, bringing lunch into him and then locking the door again and making him finish, you know. <laughs> I had a, a, a kind of a cool romantic image of that, and I wanted to do that myself. And that's why I actually came out to L.A., is so I could write music every day, which I did once TV work came my way. More shows, you know, once you have a hit show, which Third Rock was a hit right out of the box, uh, next thing you know, you have you you know you have representation and you have um, a lot of offers. And I just accepted everything because I I wasn't sure how long it was going to last. So I said yes to everything. So at one point I was doing three shows. I remember one week I was finishing up three shows and two pilots, <laughs> and I had like you know like ten people working for me to help me finish it off. So if you had wanted to know if you could be a craftsman, suddenly you were put to the test. I was, and it was a great test, too, because any neurosis I might have ever had about uh, developing a writer's block, um, you're not allowed to have one. It's a, you know, you're not even allowed to have a second idea. The first idea has to be the idea because you don't have time to write, to write an alternate because you have to move on to the next piece of music, and, and you're going to be on the air Tuesday night whether you're ready or not, so you better, be, you better finish up and hand it in. You know, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the pressure. I loved the deadlines. And I loved being part of a team that put together, you know, a whole package. It was really, um, it was really a great experience for me. So you found that those kinds of deadlines that were imposed on you made you assemble artistically much quicker than, than you would have if there were no deadlines. Yeah, I always worked quick before. You know, I write quick and I record quick, and my ideas come to me real fast. I, I, I don't really labor, never really labored over anything for long periods. I was always a fairly fast-moving creative person, but this was on a real fast track, you know, um, and it was inspiring. I really liked it. It was, um, it was really cool. It was just really, really cool. It, after about, I guess, maybe seven or eight years, I started to get burnt out, though. Because you're really being pushed all the time. Everyone's being pushed. You know, everybody, you know, the editors, the actors, the writers, everyone is being pushed. And when you're cranking out like 20 or, or more episodes of a TV show every season, there gets to be a point where you, um, you, you feel like you need a break. And uh, after 11 seasons or 11 years of doing TV music, I I decided it was time to step away before I developed a negative attitude about it. How was that manifesting? Was it, did you feel it became a grind? And I guess that's kind of the danger of being a craftsman who's working in a, in a Brill building kind of situation where you have to keep hitting these deadlines. What was happening? Did you kind of feel a heaviness around it? What I really felt was... Um, I'm at that point now where I'm not sure if I'm going to learn anything new. And that's trouble. Uh, that's trouble if you are now repeating yourself and being encouraged to repeat yourself. Because before all of this, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I didn't go to college or anything. I went straight to work in a knitting mill and I worked in a factory. And I was a landscaper. And uh, I know what repetition does to me. And it ain't good. And I was starting to feel this is a glorified repetition, mind you. 
<laughs> right. It's a repetition a lot of people would love to, to be dealing with. But um, because I was poor for so long, walking away from something and losing that income didn't really concern me. It was more about um, keeping my attitude pure, as pure as possible. And, uh, and I felt that, that, that it was, I was about to start becoming cynical and negative, and I uh, didn't want that to happen. I thought the music would suffer, too, if, if that happened. Like, everyone would pay, not just me. I, I figured it was, I, you know, it was time for me to step away. How did you re-energize yourself creatively? After leaving TV? Yeah. Or, uh, well, I, uh, I kind of took a break and didn't do much, uh, which felt awesome, you know, for about six months. And then, uh, then the itch started again. And, um, I started doing a radio show for WEVL in Memphis. They asked, they were bugging me for a while to do a radio show for them. Uh, it's one of the towns that I'm, uh, I was always popular in when, when I toured. And I would always stop by the station and do guest DJ slots, and they, they thought it would be really cool to have a show that I recorded remotely and that they would play every week. So I started doing that, which led to syndication. Uh, I got picked up by WXPN in Philly, and then I got picked up uh, right now. We're actually on 23 or maybe 24 stations. Wow. Yeah, it's a one-hour weekly radio show. It's called The Many Moods of Ben Bon, and it's kind of freeform radio that you would experience back in the early seventies when DJs on commercial stations were allowed to play whatever they wanted. And my tastes are all over the place. Like, you know, the Stooges and Merle Haggard and Henry Mancini, they, they all sound good to me. And, uh, when I put the shows together, I kind of try to create a piece, almost like a suite. So I spend a lot of time picking the music and then, where, and then I just record it and give a little bit background information, maybe some historical information about the, the pieces I'm playing. But um, that's where I put a lot of my energy because it was time for me to reconnect my, with my record collection, which is pretty big. And when I was doing TV music, I didn't have time to sit on the floor in the living room, pull albums out and just listen. I was too busy writing. And uh, I felt like it was time to kind of get back to before I was I was a professional musician, which was a lot of listening. I'm kind of a self-educated musicologist, I guess, maybe. I did a lot of listening and a lot of reading about music before I ever had a career, and I felt that that was the place to go back to and, and see where what that led to. Do your tastes still run uh, more retro, or do you pay attention to what's happening currently? Probably, uh, you know, I don't know if retro uh, is, is the proper word. Um, I am not aware of what's happening now, and I haven't been probably since, like, you know, 1981 anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, the last new record I think I remember buying uh, was The Gun Club in, like, 1981 or something. Oh. Uh, the, uh, I... I'm so, I feel like I have so much catching up to do. I keep going even fur, you know, further back than, than before I was born. You know, a Duke Ellington record from the 40s uh, that I never heard is very exciting for me to hear, you know. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not that aware of what's happening now. I couldn't. I probably could not name a current band. Except, you know, I mean, the Black Keys are probably not 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 new anymore, right? They're they're. I mean, they're you know they're ish. We'll say they're new ish. They've been around about ten years, maybe I think. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm aware of them. <laughs> there you go. But you know what's funny is I was thinking, okay, so the Black Keys, the Gun Club, Merle Haggard, there is a through, Duke Ellington, there is a through line through your taste. I don't know what it is. Do you, do you ever think about that? Like if, I bet if you made a mixtape for somebody in 1979, it would contain the Stooges, it would contain Merle Haggard, which seem on the face of it like very different um, kinds of music, but there is a through line. What do you think it is that, that appeals to you? I don't know. I, I, I don't know because uh, I would say um, probably commitment and sincerity uh, is what I'm attracted to on it with music. But I, that's not entirely true because I really am a big fan of like really crass commercial pop records that you know were you know written and produced by committee to try to sell to as many teenagers as possible. I love that stuff too. You know, so I I. I, I think that the through, through line would be uh, authenticity, but not necessarily because I do like, um, you know, processed pop records. So I, I'm not sure. It, it makes sense to me. And it's, and it's a visceral thing that happens when I'm putting the show together. It's definitely visceral. I don't really, um, I'm not using my brain much. And that's been true with most of my music that, um, like the instrumental stylings record is a great example of that. I, I had hunches and I had impulses and I acted on them and that's it. I wasn't thinking about anything else. Were you? By the way, I was thinking there is an authenticity in the processed pop in the sense that they authentically were going for something. That they they had committed themselves to reaching a huge audience of teenagers. That's true. That's true. That's a good way of looking at it. It was an authentic marketing vision they had, right? And that's and that's creative as well, you know. And it is, and it and it does require a commitment. Were you one of those guys when punk rock happened? Were you on board, or or were you not? No, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was waiting for it and didn't even know it. Uh, I was a big fan. Like I got out of high school. That this will this will. Uh, pinpoint exact, my exact age at this point, but I got out of high school in, 19, in 1973, and uh, radio was just terrible. Edgar Winter Group, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, uh, you know, progressive rock, and uh, just really, like, um, Aqualung is all I have to say, you know, Aqualung, you know, all that stuff. And what I was listening to in the early 70s was the Stooges, MC5, Flamin' Groovies, um, and country music. I really like country music and old blues records and jazz. That's what I was listening to because when I would turn on the radio, it just, I just didn't like what I was hearing. So it was, uh, the, um, and I really like garage rock. I really like the Standells and, and, uh, and you know, all the, all the great garage rock records and nuggets was probably my favorite album, which I think came out in the early seventies of all, you know, the seeds and, and, and all the, those bands, and 
when punk rock, when I first heard punk rock, I was like, oh, this is great. We're back. We're back where, um, you know, the uh, uh, the Count Five or or the Seeds. We're back with three chords and and an attitude and energy. What I always loved about Iggy was his energy. And I remember when the Stooges records came out, I, I would play them for my friends, and they're like, this just doesn't sound like music. I said, yeah, but it's energy, you know? Velvet Underground, too, like Sister Ray, that's energy. And punk rock, finally, it just pushed all that stuff, you know, all that really fat FM rock right out of the way, and there it was, you know, the, the Dead Boys and, and the uh, Sex Pistols, and uh, and the damned, all that stuff. I, I had a friend who was who bought all that stuff when it came out, and uh, he had a, he had a good paying job, and he could afford to buy all these imports the minute they came out. So I was really lucky because he would play them. He would bring them over to the house, and I would hear them. And I just flipped out. Uh, I didn't have enough money to go see that many punk bands or go out to clubs at all. But I was a huge, just hugely uh, influenced and it was it made me feel like at some point I might be able to uh, put music out myself now because things have been uh, it's, it's like punk rock gutted um, rock and roll it, it brought it down to just really simple arrangements and uh, a forcefulness that really appealed to me and I really and I thought that wow I could probably have a career if I want it because I'm I'm a simple writer and the simple chords are, are, are back now and people and people like it. And I, I think we may have just figured out the through line because if you listen to your records, you know, they aren't punk rock records, especially those early ones, but the spirit of punk rock informed them and I think the simplicity of the chords as you're talking about right now, that might be what, what I'm getting at in terms of a through line. Yeah, because Hank Williams had it too. Right. You know, uh, you're right. Uh, it doesn't explain Duke Ellington, but um, <laughs> <laughs> it, explains, it explains everything else. Uh, yeah, yeah. Merle Haggard had it. Big Bill Brunsey, you know, Helen Wolf, uh, and and the Dead Boys. I mean, it was all uh, very, very simple. Uh, the, the, one of the best things about music, uh, for me, um, what I hope I'm doing when I'm on stage playing is there's somebody in the audience that says, wow, I could do that. <laughs> and that would be a compliment, you know, as opposed to going to see a progressive rock band where you stand there and go, man, I could never do that. No matter how hard I practice, no matter how many years I put into it, I could never play that virtuoso stuff. But if you go see a country band or you go see a punk rock band, you, you think, wow, I could do, I could do that. There's also something about those those progressive bands. I mean, they're all musical geniuses, but I don't know what they were talking about in terms of lyrically. I couldn't even relate to what they were saying. Yeah, I, I hate to trash progressive rock so much in this conversation, but for <laughs> me, it really was uh, it was incomprehensible to me. I just didn't understand. And not only that, but mostly dudes liked it, which means you're really on the wrong track. Yeah. If girls don't can't dance to it, and, and girls don't like it. You, you, you're doing something wrong, you know. And uh, I, uh, I always felt that that was, uh, you know, uh, kind of technical music for dudes, you know. 
and I couldn't really uh, couldn't really get into it. And uh, but if I heard uh, the Flaming Groovies or you know or someone like that, I would I would flip out and you know just respond. Yeah, if wholeheartedly, if two guys were going to go see Yes and and try to pick up some girls in the process, th- that wasn't going to happen. No, they were going to come home alone. <laughs> And I, you know, I don't. I'm not, you know, trashing progressive rock either. I recognize the genius, and I, and I, I love it. But I mean, I love what they do, and I really value it. It just never said anything to me about my life, um, in the same way that maybe you know algebra didn't say anything to my life, and you know, and books did. Um, but I don't, I don't hate algebra or think it shouldn't exist. It's just not, not something I'm good at or un, you know can understand. Well, that's. I think that's the thing. Um, that that uh, all people should pay attention to, you know, um, what is your attention span naturally good? You know, wh- when is it really good, and when is it not? And whatever your attention span, it, you know, like you can just put hours and hours and hours in, and you're never not fascinated, or never not uh, engaged. That's probably your your natural preference, telling you, you know what what's going on and uh, of course you know if, if your natural preference is child porn then then maybe you should not follow <laughs> that attention span <laughs> as far as as far as music goes my attention span is limitless for simple rock and roll and country and blues and uh and some you know some jazz uh but I can't get through an entire side of a progressive rock album. My my mind um, drifts, and I'm just not connecting, you know. But someone else, on the other hand, it's uh, it's the complete opposite, and that's that's great, you know. Whatever brings you happiness or, or you know, satisfaction, as far as music goes, like I, you know, when everybody's making fun of Kenny G, I'm you know I, I always have to say, yeah, but you know, anyone who loves Kenny G is lucky to have something they love and uh, I'm happy for them. Yeah. And I think it has to do also with urgency, you know, like I would make mixtapes for people in the eighties and I'd put the live version of bringing on home to me by Sam cook. And I put the violent femmes after that. And, you know, to me, the through line with that music was urgency. There was an urgency that I recognized in both of them, though they were vastly different. And I was um, in a restaurant the other night and I heard Crosby, Stills and Nash, uh, the Marrakesh Express song. And I thought, I've always hated that song because, and they're not, they're not a band I ever really connected with, is because there is no urgency to what they do. Um, I certainly can appreciate it and I think it's, it's played well and I, and I understand that they're great. But for me, there was never an edge or an urgency that I could relate to or, you know, submerge myself in. Well, if the lyrics were, we are waiting for the Marrakesh Express, would that help? Because that's kind of urgent. <laughs> that's, if they're, yeah, we're, we're tired of waiting for the Marrakesh Express. Yeah, when, or when is that Marrakesh Express coming? Man, I've been standing here forever. Um, <laughs> I like it better already. Yeah, because... Yeah, because they were riding already, riding on it. So already, you know, you're. It's like, well, what's where's the tension? Right, right. If they're sick of waiting for it, or they're or they're t- even if they were tired of being on it, um, but it, it's sort of or like if they're if they're waiting waiting for their their baby to 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 come home on the Marrakesh Express, that would be better. The, yeah. I, yeah. Well, that's the that's a lack of urgency. They're already on the Marrakesh Express and they're happy. So where's the edge? 
know. Yeah, there's none. And and I think that that I like how we just rewrote the Marrakesh Express. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I agree with you. Were you one of those guys when you were a kid? Were you? Could you stay in your room for hours practicing the guitar? Um, well, I was in bands since I was 12. You know, I started out as a drummer, uh, which I never took a drum lesson in my life. I was at a rehearsal. There was a band rehearsing down the street, a garage band, and uh, I went down to watch them, and her drummer didn't show up. So they asked me to get behind the drums, and I said, well, I'm not a drummer. And they said, well, do it anyway, because we need something. And I started playing, and it was immediately there. You know, I was a drummer. Um, it was uh, from listening to so many Stones records or whatever, I just was able to play. And then I wanted to write songs, so I, I learned how to play guitar. And um, I had a friend who, who was a, a really great guitar play, rhythm guitar player, and he wanted to learn how to play lead. So he taught me how to play rhythm so we could rehearse every day after school. And he could learn how to play lead while I'm playing rhythm behind him. So he showed me a bunch of chords, and we would play a bunch of songs. And um, we, there used to be a department store in Jersey called Corvettes. They were a chain, and it's K-O-R-V-E-T-T-E-S. And uh, they had a music department upstairs where they had a, a row of silvertone acoustic guitars and songbooks. And the woman who worked in that department thought that we were cute kids. You know, we were like 14, 15 at the time. And she would let us come in there after school every day and play the guitars. And that's pretty much how I learned how to play. Um, every day at the school, and we would get songbooks out, and it'd be like a Love and Spoonful songbook or you know a Beatles songbook, and I would play the chords, and and uh, and he would play lead over top. That's a really interesting origin story in terms of how to learn how to play. It's that's so cool. She was what a nice person. Yeah, her name was Grace. I'm 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 uh, wondering if she's still around because if I could find her, I'd like to thank her because that was my education right there. You know. You mentioned, they say, you know, put, they say putting in your 10,000 hours or whatever. Well, I put at least 5,000 in at Corvettes. <laughs> and no one charged you for it. Um, nope. Where did you land on the, on the Beatles? Were they, were they a huge influence for you early on? I loved the Beatles right away. Um, I loved everything that was coming out of the radio in 1964. I mean, the, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, uh, the Who, Hermes, Hermes, Freddie and the Dreamers, Dave Clark Five, the British Invasion stuff just completely blew me away. But at the same time, Motown was at you know was at its peak, and and also soul music like Wilson Pickett, and there was even like country music on the uh, pop stations back then, like Roger Miller. And um, so I was hearing it all at the same time. But the Beatles in particular were just untouchable. You know, what they did, it, it, it was almost too good for me to be able to relate to, because every song, you know, their harmonies were so amazing. Like, I could relate to the Stones and the Kinks more, because uh, it was more stripped down, and uh, the expression was, was uh, like you said, urgency, you know. Uh, but, you know, I love the Beatles. You know, I uh, sometimes I get on a Beatles kick, and I just can't believe how good they were, you know. What amazes me about that band is their evolution in such a short period of time. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. It, uh, you know, from 1963, when they first started having hits in England, till they broke up, it's like 
30 years worth of growth there, you know. You don't see that a lot in, in bands in a, in a 10-year period. Um, you don't see that kind of maturation of sound or evolution of, of style. No, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of unbelievable. It really is. When, when you got signed to Restless, and the last record you'd bought was 1981's Gun Club record, which was a good choice, um, did you look at the roster uh, on Restless and go, who are these people? Weren't the Dead Milkmen on there? Yeah, we had the, yeah they were. I knew those guys. Um, we actually had the same manager for a while. Um, we shared a van. When they weren't on the road, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was using a van. Um, I, I was, um, I guess I felt lucky to have a record deal of any type. And I wasn't really able to relate to, to the roster of really any label at that time. Um, the big, the big thing that happened was when, when Springsteen put out the Born in the USA album, which was, what, 83 or 84? Yeah. Around there. Um, that made my type of, type of music more interesting to record company people. They, uh, they thought, oh, okay, so that's a pretty roots rock record, I guess, you know. And... Uh, huge drums however when you listen to it now the drums are the lead instrument on that record <laughs> uh, but I uh, I never did relate to I never knew what my place in the record business was and uh, and like I said before you know the marketing people couldn't figure out me either so being on wrestles I could have been on any, any label and been sort of confused as to where I fit in how did you get the attention of Marshall Crenshaw he came to see me play. Um, word got out. Uh, what happened with me is that there was a band from Springfield, Missouri called the Morels. Oh, yeah. And they were, yeah, they were a very interesting band. They were down in Springfield, Missouri, which is not their, you know, not a, an industry hotspot by any means. And they were, were recording. And hipsters from back in that day, you know, um, I don't know what the word would be. People who were um, seeking out old, older music like Link Ray or Screaming Jay Hawkins or old country records. There, the Morels really hit a nerve with uh, those type of people in New York City. They flipped out because they were playing all these obscure covers, and they were really good and they were really natural. They weren't trendy at all. They uh, they looked like. Uh, they wore final shirts and jeans, you know, and this is like 1981, 82, when, you know, Flock of Seagulls and, and Haircut 100 were big. And they uh, recorded one of my songs. I met those guys, and they, um, when I told them I was a songwriter, they asked me to give them a tape, and I did, and they worked up like four of my songs, and they recorded one of them on their album, which came out in 82. And that led to interest in New York, people were wondering who I was. And a few promoters reached out to me and I ended up playing some gigs up there. And the first gig I did in New York City under my own name, I was written up in the New York Times. Wow. So I kind of I kind of arrived, almost like the, the Hollywood story, but you know, a lower rent version of it. I arrived immediately and Marshall Crenshaw was there, you know, and saw me play and, and introduced himself to me. and and uh, said he wanted to write some songs with me. So we tried writing some songs together, 
which uh, we didn't really come up with anything that we thought was that good for whatever reason. And then he said, why don't I just record one of yours? And I, and I said, yeah, I would be into that. <laughs> I'm not going to say no. And he cut, uh, I'm sorry, but so is Brenda Lee. So, like, the Morels were the first people to record one of my songs, and then Marshall was the second person. And that changed everything because Marshall was really well respected in the business. Yeah. He was a major label artist, and he was a great songwriter himself. So, if he chose someone else's song, that was a big deal. It was considered a big deal at the time that he would do someone else's song. A great, 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 great thing about Marshall. I was, uh, this is like probably back in early 90s, I'm walking down the street in New York City, and I see Marshall walking toward me with a guitar case. This is in the 90s. And I said, hey, Marshall, what are you doing? He goes, I'm coming back for my guitar lesson. <laughs> I said, you, I said you, you take lessons? And he goes, yeah. Don't you? And I go, um, no. <laughs> I was just really impressed. The guy that good was still taking lessons. I like hearing that. I mean, because again, you know, perfecting the craft, it's like you're, you know, you're chasing, chasing these chords your whole life um, and trying to perfect this. But I wonder if music, just like chess, can't really be mastered. That's the great thing about it, though. The great thing about it is you will never, never uh, not, the best way to put this, there's always a new thing ahead of you that you didn't know before always and there's always a record you've never heard one of the reasons to stay alive and stay in good shape is because you never know when you're going to hear your favorite song you might think you already know what your favorite song is but that's not really true you might turn the corner and a song might come out randomly out of someone's window and you go oh my god this is the greatest thing i've ever heard in my life and that could happen tomorrow that that moment when we encounter that song, that is just pure magic. It is. There's no word to explain it, really. It's, uh, it's such a... It, it works on such a uh, non-intellectual level. Your critical mind, because you know you're not ready yet, you know, your critical mind takes a little while to, to ramp up and then, and then you know, uh, be picky about stuff. When you hear something that hits you like that, your critical mind uh, didn't have a chance to get involved. Your mind didn't even get involved, probably. You just felt something. Were you inspired by Marshall to to take any kind of lessons with music at all? No. (laughs) 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 No, I I like... uh, I like this. Uh, I, I don't know how, how to explain it. Um, uh, I still play drums every now and then in a, in a in a garage band out here in L.A. and I refuse to rehearse. You know, I want to keep it pure. You know, that's the urgency. You you still have that rebellious sort of punk rock ethos. Well, I like feeling something. You know, I like feeling something when you're on stage, and if you're too prepared. Uh, you lose that for me. And um, I like not knowing exactly what's going to happen next on stage and whether we're all, the band is going to come together or fall apart. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of stepping on stage under-informed. I saw Van Morrison in 1970 when uh, Moondance was a brand... Actually, like, 
uh, Domino was climbing the charts at that time. And I saw him do a gig, and there were a few moments in that show where he directed the band. He brought everything down to, to where you could hear a pin drop, and he either did something completely magical or it failed. And I was really impressed with that. I thought, wow, that is like really taking a chance up there. You know, it's, it's great to take that risk. But what I saw was, was an artist who was seeking a moment and seeking an, uh, an authentic moment that would only happen once probably ever. They could never repeat that moment. And uh, it's, that's a big part for me of what performing is about. And it, it reminds me, when you mentioned Van Morrison, I think he operated on, you know, 100% feeling. You know, it was sort of like there was nothing planned. It seemed to me like he just went with how he felt. Almost true. Yeah, he did have horn charts, though. Oh, yeah. Those are arranged. Like, if you hear a domino, man, that's amazing. <laughs> and they played it that night with the horn chart. And I've seen Van Morrison many, many, many times, probably more than 20 times, uh, because I like being in, uh, I like being in the same room with that that kind of um, searching, you know, that he does. And I've seen him on really bad nights where it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And I've seen him on nights where you, you just cannot believe you're you're witnessing what you're witnessing. Uh, it's a combination. You know, he's he's a professional. You know, it's a combination of having arrangements and having a really tight band, but also uh, directing that band at a certain point in the show to back off and see what's possible and forget about the arrangement for a minute. And uh, it's, it's really inspiring to me. When you say it's not working, what what's happening that, that makes that so obvious? It just doesn't lead to anything. Um, it kind of uh, it stalls out and doesn't really lead to anything that feels like a unanimous thing that, that the entire audience is going to respond to. Um, it's about the only way I can describe it. It's kind of hard to describe. You know, it's one of those things where you know it when you hear it, and you know it when you don't hear it. Do you think he knows it? I mean, is it clear to him, do you think? I think so. I think so. I think, uh, but I think he's okay with uh, trying and failing. Um, he's a very human performer in that sense. And uh, the only other act I've ever seen that really does that is uh, Sun Ra and, the, and his orchestra. <laughs> they were amazing. And he uh, came, they had a lot of arrangements and everything, but he would rearrange right on stage. And sometimes it was incredible. And sometimes it was just weird, you know, and didn't, didn't really connect. Um, I wanted to ask you, what is what is next for you? What What are your... For a guy who doesn't plan much, what, what, are, the, what, are, your, what are your immediate plans? Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, what's happening right now is I have an acoustic, a solo acoustic record I just finished recording. It's coming out. It's called Imitation Wood Grain and Other Folk Songs. And it's uh, going to be coming. I'm putting it out myself. In a, probably about three weeks it'll be out. Wow. And Yeah, yeah, and it's brand new songs that I'm still writing. Um, and the songs come to me while I'm driving or while I'm going out for a walk. I'm not trying to write. They're, they're appearing. 
and I'm uh, scrambling to to remember them and, and record them. And uh, so that's coming out. And I'm going to be going over and playing a few shows in France uh, April 5th. Uh, I'll be over there. And I'm um, going to be doing something uh, in Philadelphia. There's a, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is uh, having a, um, I guess they call it a, a retreat for everyone to go there to Philadelphia and they're going to celebrate Philadelphia music and I'm going to be leading the, the band to back up uh, Philly artists uh, from yesteryear like uh, Charlie Gracie and uh, Charlie the singer from the Soul Survivors people like that and uh, and all of this is not a career to me you know this is just uh, if something sounds like fun or it sounds interesting I say yes and I get offers I get a lot of offers to do various things, and I turn most of them down because they just sound like um, too too much, uh, too business-like to me. You know, like uh, I'm not a person who's trying to get more attention, and uh, I'm very happy exactly where I am as far as where I fit in into the history of music, and my lifestyle um, is not, my lifestyle is completely my own, and I'm pretty protective about that. Well, you you've carved out this this way of living and this way of life that you know you you're a happy person because of it. You're not you're not serving any any master, and you're you're just serving yourself. And you've managed to make a career out of it, which is really inspiring. Well, thank you. Yeah, I um, I feel very uh, I feel you know very lucky and fortunate that um, I've been able to do this. And uh, you know, I saw my dad go to work every day, um, and I saw what it did to him. And it was a, you know, he didn't really connect with his job, but he did it. And I, I just grew up looking at that. And all of my friends' fathers did the same thing, you know. And I thought, man, I just got to live outside of that, you know, that template. I, I just, I just can't do that. And music was, uh, you know, music chose me. I didn't choose music. I mean, music chose me from the time I was a little kid, you know. It just, uh, probably like you. You know, it's like it immediately meant everything to you and you never even, you can't even pinpoint where it started. It just is there, you know. And I figured I, I probably have, my passion for music is so complete and so real and, and unshakable that I should work in music. I should figure out a way to work in music. And I remember my dad saying to me, well, you're going to be poor for the rest of your life if you do that. And I thought, actually, he said, get ready to be poor. And he thought he was discouraging me, but I took that as, as advice. <laughs> so I got I got ready to be poor. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and that's why I was able to pursue and stay um, stay on the path because I never really expected financial gain or or fame. You know, fame never really interested me. Uh, it would be nice to earn a living. And. Uh, you know, be recognized by enough people, but um, I've never really been interested in, in being famous, which which helps a lot. It really helps a lot. You can really uh, spend more time with the music if you're not spending time worrying about whether you're famous or not. Well, man, it is it is a real pleasure to speak with you. I, I've been a fan for a long time, and man, thanks for signing that poster for me. Yeah, I, I, uh, I do remember that. That's pretty funny. That is um, funny. 
that was uh, a long time ago, too.